Section 46 of Celebrated Travels and Travelers, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Celebrated Travels and Travelers, Volume 2, Great Navigators of the 18th Century, by Jules Verne. Second Part, Chapter 4, The Two Americas, C. We have now to relate the travels of a man who recognized, better than any one else had done, the connection between geography and the other physical sciences. We allude to Alexander von Humboldt. To him is due the credit of having opened to travelers this fertile source of knowledge. Born at Berlin in 1759, Humboldt's earliest studies were carried on under Campy, the well-known editor of many volumes of travels. Endowed with a great taste for botany, Humboldt made friends at the University of Göttingen with Forster the Younger, who had just made the tour of the world with Captain Cook. This friendship, and the enthusiastic accounts given of his adventures by Forster, probably did much to rouse in Humboldt a longing to travel. He took the lead in the study of geology, botany, chemistry, and animal magnetism and to perfect himself in the various sciences, he visited England, Holland, Italy, and Switzerland. In 1797, after the death of his mother, who objected to his leaving Europe, he went to Paris, where he became acquainted with Aimé Bonpland, a young botanist, with whom he at once agreed to go on several exploring expeditions. It had been arranged that Humboldt should accompany Captain Bowden, but the delay in the starting of his expedition exhausted the young enthusiast's patience, and he went to Marseilles with the intention of joining the French army in Egypt. For two whole months he waited for the sailing of the frigate which was to take him, and, weary of inaction, he went to Spain with his friend Bonplan in the hope of obtaining permission to visit the Spanish possessions in America. This was no easy matter, but Humboldt was a man of rare perseverance. He was thoroughly well informed, he had first-rate introductions, and he was, moreover, already becoming known. In spite, therefore, of the extreme reluctance of the government, he was at last authorized to explore the Spanish colonies, and take any astronomical or geodesic observations he chose. The two friends left Coruna on the 5th June, 1799, and reached the Canaries thirteen days later. Of course, as naturalists, they were in duty bound not to land at Tenerife without ascending the peak. Scarcely any naturalist, says Humboldt in a letter to La Maturie, quote, who, like myself, has passed through to the Indies, has had time to do more than go to the foot of this colossal volcano, and admire the delightful gardens of Orotava. Fortunately for me, our frigate, the Pizarro, stopped for six days. I examined in detail the layers of which the peak of Teide is composed. We slept in the moonlight at a height of twelve hundred fathoms. At two o'clock in the morning we started for the summit, where we arrived at eight o'clock, in spite of the violent wind, the great heat of the ground, which burnt our boots, and the intense cold of the atmosphere. I will tell you nothing about the magnificent view, which included the volcanic islands of Lanzarote, Canaria, and Gomera, at our feet, 
the desert twenty leagues square strewn with pumice stone and lava and without insects or birds separating us from thickets of laurel trees and heaths or of the vineyards studded with palms banana and dragon trees the roots of which are washed by the waves we went into the very crater itself it is not more than forty or sixty feet deep the summit is one thousand nine hundred four fathoms above the sea level as estimated by borda in a very careful geometric measurement the crater of the peak that is to say of the summit has been inactive for several centuries lava flowing from the sides only the crater however provides an enormous quantity of sulphur and sulphate of iron End quote. in july humboldt and bonpland arrived at cumana in that part of america known as terra firma here they spent some weeks in examining the traces left by the great earthquake of seventeen ninety seven they then determined the position of cumana which was placed a degree and a half too far north on all the maps an error due to the fact of the current bearing to the north near la trinidad having deceived all travellers in december seventeen ninety nine humboldt wrote from caracas to the astronomer lalande quote, i have just completed an intensely interesting journey in the interior of paria in the cordillera of coclar to mary and guiri i had two or three mules loaded with instruments dried plants etc we penetrated to the capuchin mission which had never been visited by any naturalist we discovered a great number of new plants chiefly varieties of palms and we are about to start for the orinoco and propose pushing on from it perhaps to san carlos in the rio negro beyond the equator we have dried more than sixteen hundred plants and described more than five hundred birds picked up numberless shells and insects and i have made fifty drawings i think that is pretty well in four months considering the broiling heat of this zone during this first trip humboldt visited the chaima and guaruno missions he also climbed to the summit of the tumirikiri and went down into the guacharo cavern the entrance to which framed as it is with the most luxuriant vegetation is truly magnificent from it issues a considerable river and its dim recesses echo to the gloomy notes of birds it is the acheron of the chaima indians for according to their mythology and that of the natives of orinoco the souls of the dead go to this cavern to go down into the guacharo signifies in their language to die the indians go into the guacharo cavern once a year in the middle of summer and destroy the greater number of the nests in it with long poles at this time many thousands of birds die a violent death and the old inhabitants of the cave hover above the heads of the indians with piercing cries as if they could defend their broods the young birds which fall to the ground are opened on the spot their peritoneum is covered with a thick layer of fat extending from the abdomen to the anus and forming a kind of cushion between the legs at the time called at caripe the oil harvest the indians build themselves huts of palm trees outside the cavern and then light fires of brushwood over which they hang clay pots filled with the fat of the young birds recently killed this fat known under the name of the guachado oil or butter 
is half liquid, transparent, without smell, and so pure that it can be kept a year without going rancid. Humboldt continues, quote, We passed fifteen days in the Caripe Valley, situated at a height of 952 Castilian Vadas above the sea level, and inhabited by naked Indians. We saw some black monkeys with red beards. We had the satisfaction of being treated with the greatest kindness by the Capuchin monks and the missionaries living amongst these semi-barbarous people. From the Caripe Valley, the two travelers went back to Cumana by way of the Santa Maria Mountains and the Catuaro Missions, and on the 21st November they arrived, having come by sea, at Caracas, a town situated in the midst of a valley rich in cocoa, cotton, and coffee, yet with a European climate. Humboldt turned his stay at Caracas to account by studying the light of the stars of the southern hemisphere, for he noticed that several, notably the altar, the feet of the centaur, and others, seemed to have changed since the time of La Calle. At the same time he put his collections in order, dispatching part of them to Europe, and most thoroughly examined some rocks, with a view to ascertaining of what materials the earth's crust was here composed. After having explored the neighborhood of Caracas, and ascended the Silla, which, although close to the town, had never been scaled by any native, Humboldt and Bonpland went to Valencia, along the shores of a lake called Tacarigua by the Indians, and exceeding in size that of Neuchatel in Switzerland. Nothing could give any idea of the richness and variety of the vegetation. But the interest of the lake consists not only in its picturesque and romantic beauty, the gradual decrease in the volume of its waters attracted the attention of Humboldt, who attributed it to the reckless cutting down of the forests in its neighborhood, resulting in the exhaustion of its sources. Near this lake Humboldt received proof of the truth of the accounts he had heard of an extraordinary tree, the palo de la vaca, or cow-tree, which yields a balsamic and very nutritive milk, drawn off from incisions made in the bark. The most arduous part of the trip began at Porto Caballo, at the entrance to the Llanos, or perfectly flat plains stretching between the hills of the coast and the Orinoco Valley. I am not sure, says Humboldt, quote, that the first sight of the Llanos is not as surprising as that of the Andes. End quote. Nothing, in fact, could be more striking than this sea of grass, from which whirls of dust rise up continually, although not a breath of wind is felt at Calaboso in the centre of this vast plain. Humboldt first tested the power of the gymnotus, or electric eel, large numbers of which are met with in all the tributaries of the Orinoco. The Indians, who were afraid of exposing themselves to the electric discharge of these singular creatures, proposed sending some horses into the marsh containing them. The extraordinary noise made by the shoes of the horses, says Humboldt, quote, made the eels come out of the ooze and prepare for battle. The yellowish livid gymnoti, resembling serpents, swam on the top of the water, and squeezed themselves under the bodies of the quadrupeds which had disturbed them. The struggle which ensued between animals so differently constituted presented a very striking spectacle. The Indians, armed with harpoons and long canes, 
surrounded the pond on every side, and even climbed into the trees, the branches of which stretched horizontally over the water. Their wild cries, as they brandished their long sticks, prevented the horses from running away and getting back to the shores of the pond, whilst the eels, driven mad by the noise, defended themselves by repeated discharges from their electric batteries. For a long time they appeared victorious, and some horses succumbed to the violence of the repeated shocks which they received upon their vital organs from every side. They were stunned and sank beneath the water. Others, panting for breath, with manes erect and wild eyes full of the keenest suffering, tried to fly from the scene, but the merciless Indians drove them back into the water. A very few, who succeeded in eluding the vigilance of the guards, regained the bank, stumbling at every step, and lay down upon the sand, exhausted with fatigue, every limb paralyzed from the electric shocks received from the eels. I never remember receiving a more terrible shock from a laden jar than I did from a gymnotus on which I accidentally trod just after it had come out of the water. The astronomic position of Calabozo having been determined, Humboldt and Bonpland resumed their journey to the Orinoco. The Uritiku, with its numerous and ferocious crocodiles, and the Apure, one of the tributaries of the Orinoco, the banks of which are covered with a luxuriant vegetation, such as is only met with in the tropics, were successively crossed or descended. The latter stream is flanked on either side by thick hedges, with openings here and there, through which boars, tigers, and other wild animals make their way to quench their thirst. When the shades of night shut in the forest, so silent by day, it resounds with the cries of birds and the howling or roaring of beasts of prey, vying with each other as to which shall make the most noise. While the Uritico is inhabited by fierce crocodiles, the Apure is the home of a small fish called the Carabito, which attacks bathers with great fury, often biting out large pieces of flesh. It is only four or five inches long, but more formidable than the largest crocodile, and the waters it frequents are carefully avoided by the Indians. In spite of their fondness for bathing, and the relief it affords them, persecuted as they are by ants and mosquitoes. Our travellers went down the Orinoco as far as the Temi, which is connected by a short portage with the Cano Pimicino, a tributary of the Rio Negro. The banks of the Temi, and the adjacent forests, are often inundated, and then the Indians make waterways two or three feet wide between the trees. Nothing could be more quaint or imposing than floating amongst the gigantic growths beneath their green foliage. Sometimes, three or four hundred leagues inland, the traveller comes upon a troop of fresh-water dolphins, spouting up water and compressed air in the manner which has gained for them the name of blowers. It took four days to transport the canoes from the Tenir to the Cano Pimicino, as a path had to be cleared with axes. The Pimicino flows into the Rio Negro, which is in its turn a tributary of the Amazon. Humboldt and Bonpland went down the Rio Negro as far as San Carlos, and then up the Casiquiaro, an important branch of the Orinoco which connects it with the Rio Negro. 
the shores of the Casiquiaro are inhabited by the Idapaminores, who live entirely on smoked ants. Lastly, the travellers went up the Orinoco nearly to its source, at the foot of the Duida volcano, where their further progress was stopped by the hostility of the Guajaribos and the Guayca Indians, who were skilful marksmen with the bow and arrow. Here was discovered the famous El Dorado Lake with its floating islets of talc. Thus was finally solved the problem of the junction of the Orinoco and the Marañón, which takes place on the borders of the Spanish and Portuguese territories, two degrees above the equator. The two travellers then floated with the current down the Orinoco, traversing by this means five hundred leagues in twenty-five days, after which they halted for three weeks at Angostura, to tide over the time of the great heat, when fever is prevalent, regaining Cumana in October 1800. My health, says Humboldt, quote, was proof against the fatigue of a journey of more than thirteen hundred leagues, but my poor comrade Bonpland was, immediately on his return, seized with fever and sickness, which nearly proved fatal. A constitution of exceptional vigor is necessary to enable a traveller to bear the fatigue, privations, and interruptions of every kind with which he has to contend in these unhealthy districts with impunity. We were constantly surrounded by voracious tigers and crocodiles, stung by venomous mosquitoes and ants, with no food for three months but water, bananas, fish, and tapioca, now crossing the territory of the earth-eating Otomaques, now wandering through the desolate regions below the equator, where not a human creature is seen for 130 leagues. Few indeed are those who survive such perils and such exertions. Fewer still are those who, having surmounted them, have sufficient courage and strength to encounter them a second time. End, quote. End of section 46